Welcome to Harmony Talk. It's a podcast about dreamers and doers. We talk to some very interesting people who share their dreams and tell us how they fulfilled those dreams. This podcast is brought to you by A.M. Skyer, a third-generation family insurance agency, which began in 1920. I'm your host, Lisa Shampo. And my guest today is Pete Muller, a singer-songwriter who currently hangs his hat in California, who has four solo albums and a fifth with his band, The Kindred Souls. His work includes several songs in Billboard magazine's Top 30 on the adult contemporary chart including Let You In, which we'll hear a little bit of in just a few minutes. Now, Pete, I know you're a singer-songwriter, but you have also been called a renaissance man because you're also a math wizard. You're founder of the quantitative hedge fund Process Driven Trading Partners, or PDT. You're an accomplished pianist, and I think you have your piano right there. We may even hear a few notes. A world-class poker player, a surfer, a yogi, You do crossword puzzles occasionally for the New York Times, and you have a monthly crossword puzzle called Music Metapuzzle in the Washington Post, which leads me to ask, do you ever sleep? But before we get there, (laughs) let me just say that you also have a full concert schedule. I was looking at it. You're capable of doing about seven cities in 10 days, including Montreux Jazz Festival in Switzerland, Americana Fest in Nashville and an upcoming concert in Hawley, Pennsylvania for our sister project. It's a benefit concert, Harmony in the Woods. So it would be fair to say, I think, that you are not a dabbler in music. This is not a hobby. Yet you had a wildly, wildly successful career as an investment trader. What drove you to begin this second career? Well, it, it, you know, it, it, it's funny, Lisa. I, I still haven't left that career. I think what I do in the fabric that ties it all together is, is I love to create. And creation is not a, a matter of time. It's a matter of energy. So if you get yourself into a really cool place, you can come up with a great idea. You can come up with a song. I can, I can write a song in an hour or two if I'm in the right place. I can figure out a cool way to motivate or manage somebody or build a model or write a crossword. If I'm not in that place, I, you know, I could spend two or three days doing it and get nowhere. So it, it's really a question of energy and creating. But you would say that this music career of yours right now is certainly a busy, full, hectic schedule in the studio and on the road. Oh, it's been fantastic. You know, before the pandemic, we played 50 shows a year. And and what happened is I started getting more and more serious about writing. I, I had burned out in, I guess it was 1999, 2000. I had built my group up. I made more money than I ever dreamed of. Felt I was really successful, but I wasn't happy. And I went through a really tough breakup and... The only way I could process it was by writing songs. I'd always played the piano and really hadn't sung much. And I started writing songs and I wrote a whole bunch and that was the way I worked through it. I listened to it and I thought, huh, songwriting's tough and maybe I don't really sound that great vocally. Let me work on this. And I started working really hard, ended up putting out a couple albums and was on track to just do that and leave the world of quantitative finance. And I met the woman who became my wife. And she correctly pointed out, she said, you know, I think you kind of need the intensity of the the quant group you built, too. You get a lot of energy from that. So I thought, you know, maybe I could go back and do that a little bit. Long story short, I ended up having to go back full time. But I kept doing the music. So for a long time, I would fly to New York from our home in Santa Barbara, where we raised our two kids. And I would be there for my group for a week. And one night, on Thursday nights, I would play down in the village with my band. And that was always my favorite night. And I, I did that for a while. So you were always doing music. 
Yeah, I had a jazz band when I lived in California before moving to New York. So I've, I've always played. And then after those two albums and going back to work and having a couple kids, it was kind of in a steady state. And then in 2014, the business was stable. Kids were going to school. I said, you know, if I, if I don't do this now, if I don't really try my hardest, I'll never do it. So I dove back in and that was album number three. And then album number four was 2018. And when I did that, my wife said, well, if you're going to be serious about music, you should go out and play in front of strangers because it's all well and good to play in front of your friends. But, and I said, okay, I don't, I don't think she'd take me that seriously, but we, we signed up to do, to be the opening act for a couple of national acts and went around the country. And that's when we did 50 shows right before the pandemic and turned out people liked the music. It was cool. So I said, I should keep doing this. Absolutely. Let's talk for a second about creativity, which you mentioned a little bit earlier. What are your inspirations for your songs and how would you describe your music? Would you say it's um, light rock or is there a musician that, that inspires you and that you would like to sort of travel with? There are many. Oh, top of the list, I would throw out Brandy Carlisle, if you know her. I would call our music, and Missy Saltero, who's in the band, came up with this, and I thought it was great, which is Americana with a rock soul vibe. And Missy Saltero, who is one of your bandmates, has an absolutely beautiful voice. She does, doesn't she? Yeah. We met, oh, I think it's more than 10 years ago. We have mutual friends, and we were at the rehearsal dinner for their wedding, and one of them suggested, you know, both of you guys played music, you should try something together. So we did, and... We both kind of knew, okay, wow, this has got to be. She lives in Mammoth. I live in Santa Barbara, so we can't get together all the time. But, you know, we've been collaborating for a very long time. Well, let's listen for just a moment to one of the songs that you collaborated on, which is Let You In. Just wanna hide Run so far away from you Crawl back inside But that's not what I'm gonna do Gonna let go my pride Go out on a limb And I'm gonna let you in It's a beautiful song, and it is one of your popular songs. It's also, in looking at the video of that song, it was very interesting because you have, it's of course about letting love in, but in the video itself, you have an interracial couple, you have a lesbian couple, and you have another couple. Was there anything going on there politically? Like, in other words, letting you in was also about inclusivity? Well, I'll tell you the story of the song. We were in a car on the way to a gig in LA and we were stuck in traffic. This is a number of years ago. And Missy was telling me the story of 
the guy she had just begun to date, when we talked about vulnerability and how to really have a deeply committed love relationship, you have to be vulnerable, but that it's really hard. And that resonated with me too in my marriage. And then to really be fully open to another person is allowing them to, to, to really hurt you. <laughs> and we thought, wow, that, that's kind of cool. So in the car, we actually came up with the, with the whole chorus of the song. And then as I do later, another day I went to Missy and I said, okay, tell me the whole story of you and your guy, how you met, what happened and all that. And so it's basically her story, but the feeling of being scared and letting somebody in anyway and being vulnerable, I think resonated a lot with me and resonated with a lot of people who heard it. And then you, you asked about the video, the, our director, Lenny Bass, who I've worked with since and I'm hoping to work with again on Missy and I have a new duet on the new album called Light Up the Night, which I can tell you about. But Lenny came up with the idea of having three couples dancing and doing this simultaneous act of letting another person in. And we thought, you know, we should make it inclusive. Why not? It turned out to touch a lot of people. And it's definitely, it's a soft touch. It's not a hard touch. It's not like you're screaming inclusivity. It's a, it's a beautiful song and it definitely resonates in terms of letting love in. In fact, a lot of your songs are about, kind of about that. You have another song called Afraid of Love. Maybe we can listen to a little bit of that as well. I never knew what to do when she'd lie to me. We all have to choose eventually. Oh, you seem so tough. Just afraid of love. You're just afraid of love. It's what you want, but is it enough? Yeah, afraid of love. That was recorded when we played at a at a venue we really love in Michigan called Twenty Front Street. We did an outdoor show. And then they have this, this thing they call the green room sessions where they put the band in the green room and you just have one mic in front of you and you play a song. And so Afraid of Love is actually one of the new songs that's coming out on the record. It's also about vulnerability and I guess the power of the feminine. I think in the beginning of the song, if I recall, it's kind of you're talking about the other person and at the end you're, you're talking about yourself. <laughs> exactly. So it kind of goes both ways, you know. In other words, you have to be open and so does your partner. Exactly. To love is to conquer fear. If you really, there are very few people that I've met in my life who can completely love without being scared. Most of us are scared because you can get hurt. So the trick is to be scared and do it anyway. One of the best things that happened to me in my life, you know, I, I said I got into songwriting in 1999-2000. My heart was broken in a, a very, very tough story. And I never got mad at the person who broke my heart. I took 100% of the responsibility, probably more than, you know, a fair arbiter would. And I, I just said, you know, this is all on me. And 15 years later, we reconnected and we're great friends. And there's a piece there. And going through that pain, which was a lot of pain, was huge for my own growth. It, you know, it really got me into songwriting. I thought, I want to do this. I want to. And I, I, so I started a songwriter circle and a friend of mine 
had gone to NYU Tisch. So I went to Tisch. I got into the master's program in musical theater. I didn't really want to do musical theater. I learned how to do a songwriting circle well, how to critique people, how to be critiqued. And I thought, this is what I want to do, but I don't want to do musical theater. So I started my own songwriting circle, and we met once a week in New York. And I would cook pasta and salad for people. And if you came, you had to bring a bottle of wine and lyrics to a new song. You had to write something new every week. And everyone would play their song twice, and then we would critique. And I wrote a lot of songs <laughs> during that time. Yeah, well, you have four solo albums, I believe, and, and a fifth one coming out, or maybe it's out already. But let's talk a bit about your, your actual background. Your parents were immigrants, an Austrian engineer and a Brazilian psychiatrist. I don't hear music there. Did either of them perform or play an instrument? They didn't. My mom grew up in Brazil. She became a psychiatrist when she came to the States, but when she was a, one of the first women doctors in Brazil, she lived in this tiny town in the mountains where her dad was the only doctor. She went to medical school, came back to town, had the urge to explore, but as soon as she got back to town, her dad had a heart attack, and she became the only doctor in the town. I still remember 20 years later, she went back with us, and we were walking the streets of the town. And she hadn't been back for 20. I think she, she we, we came down when I was three years old. I don't remember that. But I'm 23 and we're walking the streets of the town and half the people we run into recognize her. Dr. Muller, you you gave birth to my son. Dr. Muller, you healed my broken arm. Dr. Muller, you, you healed me when I was very sick. It was... So she wasn't just a psychiatrist. She actually used her MD degree to, to be kind of a, a doctor to all. She was, she was. And then she she came to the States for a postdoc at UNC. Is that where she met your father? Or? <laughs> she met him on that trip in New York. He uh, There was a family connection he showed her around, but the conditions of her grant were such that she uh, returned to the country she came from. So they actually had to postpone their wedding because she wasn't technically allowed to be in the States, but eventually they figured it out. Even if she was a practicing doctor, she had to retake her boards and do her residency. And so she switched to psychiatry because it was the easiest path. I take a lot of inspiration for her and from her. And in fact, if you want to play a song for your... Oh my gosh, Alive in Me. That is a beautiful song and it is about your mother. So if we have a few minutes to listen to it, I would love to play it for our audience. Yeah, she passed away a few years ago, but you know, she's still alive in me. When I'm trying hard to find some strength, I hear you. Telling me it's okay to be different I hear you I hear you But it's so damn hard To think your time has come Just know I'm so proud To say that I'm your son I'm your son And you're alive in me You're alive in me You're alive in me Now, you went on from high school and your early years to Princeton, where you majored in math. You were a math honor student, but you also, I think, were involved in Ultimate Frisbee and the Colonial Club. But you did major in math, and you were an honors student. And when you left, though, you didn't choose a math course right away. 
So I had worked for a German software firm called Mixdorf in Germany for a summer. And then they offered me a job in L.A. and for the next summer. So I worked there and then they offered me a permanent position in New York programming. And I still remember it was a long time ago, but it was it's a great wage. But I just thought, I don't want to do this. And so I said, you know what, I'll, I'll take the job, but give me a number of months. So I had a friend in, in the eating club. And she was a rhythmic gymnast, you know, with the hoops and the balls and the clubs and all that. And back then, the rules for rhythmic gymnastics were you could, you would have one instrument playing for you, and that was it. You were allowed to do something pre-recorded, but it had to be one instrument. So the girls who could afford it would do it, would have a pianist playing live. So if you threw the clubs up a little too high, the piano player could wait and, you know, time it. So she told me that she was going to go to the Olympic Festival to try out for the Olympics and asked me if uh, I would write a piece for her. And so I thought, okay. And I, I still remember the piece I wrote. This is a long time ago. It was called Happy Fruit. She came back and she said, I don't know. It's kind of, it's a little weird. And I, I was crushed, but I thought, okay, no problem. A week later, she came back and she said, oh my God, I've never not gotten sick of a piece that I have. And I love your piece. It's amazing. She said, come with me to Atlanta, play it live you know, be my pianist. And I said, sure, why not? Now, if she had come first, I would have been the Olympic pianist, which would have been fantastic. She didn't really have a shot of being first, but she came fourth. And I met the coach of a girl who I think came third, didn't make the team. But she said, if you're ever in California, come write music for our girls. And I said, fantastic. So I was, I was a pretty young 21, I guess, at the time. I drove across the country and got to Marin County where this woman lived. And I called her up and I said, hi, remember me? And she said, oh, are you in California? And I said, yeah, you said, if, you know, to call you if I ever wanted to do some music for your girl. She said, that's great. Where are you staying? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> they ended up putting me up for a while. After about six months, I moved out and I realized that I loved, I loved California and I wanted to stay there. So I looked around for a job. And I knew how to program, and I kept putting Nixdorf off in New York. And I, find, I found this company, it's a small firm called Barra, and they did financial consulting. It was run by some professors from uh, Cal Berkeley, the other Berkeley, led by a, a Zen Buddhist named Bar Rosenberg, who had a great philosophy of life. He was very smart, and he figured out how to build these models that investment managers were interested in. And he ran it. He didn't really run it like a business, although it was profitable because he could charge a lot of money. He had office hours from between three and four on Tuesdays when the clients could call and ask him questions. And that was about it. <laughs> Nobody else had what, what he built. And so he hired a number of professors and the company gradually became more professional. And I dove in and I never had any interest in finance, but I thought this is, this is fun. So I learned it. I learned it really well. And I ended up giving talks. We would do seminars at Pebble Beach. I would give talks to people about it. And it was all math and math came pretty easily to me. Just for a second, for, for those in our audience who might not understand, and I'm going to ask you not to get too technical, but what exactly is quantitative trading? So we spend a lot of time looking at past data, trying to predict future prices of stocks, futures, currencies, using all the information that we have. And when our forecast of that price is different enough from the current price, we'll take a position. And we do it in an automated way. And it's a statistical game. So we, we make many, many, many thousands of trades every day all around the world. And we never risk too much on any one trade. 
So in a statistical way, we ensure the highest probability of success. You know, the group has grown. We have 250 people now, and it's a research lab. I mean, I, I think the people there are smart enough to to work on curing cancer and you know, or, or space flight, but everybody is fascinated by the problem of beating the markets. And so that's what the group does. Let's talk for a second about the connection between math and music. Many people do say because they have patterns that there is kind of a connection. So maybe you can tell us how it works for you. So it is all creativity. It's all picturing things in my mind. And I think, you know, and as I have kids, I have, a, I have an 11 year old and a 12 year old and I watch and I think in life, when you're passionate about something, you start learning it and diving in and you form neural connections that allow you to process it faster. And then it gets more exciting and you build something or you get somewhere and you go, oh, this is too hard. I don't want to do it. And then those connections don't form. So I don't believe, I think for some people, they've been passionate about math and they've been passionate about music and they love both and, or maybe words. Other people were drawn to music and not to math and vice versa. But I think everyone can cultivate their those gifts. But naturally, as humans, we, we specialize in the things that come more easily to us. I will say that on the whole, math came, math just came to me. It was just like I, I was born to do it. I went, I went to public high school, but in 11th and 12th grade, I had my own math class. It just came to me. I've always loved music, but I've had to work harder at it. There's a lot of creativity. I mean, sure, two plus two is four. But when you're building a model to try to explain the real world, there are different ways to approach things. And there's no right or wrong answer. And there's a subjectivity in it as well. There's a creativity. There's not just one right answer. And so in that way, it's very similar to music where there's not one right answer, but something's better and something, than something else. That sounds... Now, somehow you also got involved in writing, obviously songwriting, which also is different from math and from melody or songs. So writing must have been something that you were also interested in. I've always loved to write. I've always tried to express ideas as precisely and as possible. You know, I think I do enjoy public speaking. I do enjoy trying to explain something to somebody else and figuring out if they understand it or not. And songwriting and telling a story is very much like that. When I first started, I would tell my story, my emotions, my pain and all that. And I realized after a little while, well, okay, that's really great. That's kind of therapy. But if you want to connect with an audience, you have to figure out what's universal about your struggle. You have to tell it in a way that people go, oh, wow, I can identify with that. So maybe you change some of the facts or you omit some of the facts or you focus on aspects that you wouldn't otherwise. And that's the art. Do you think music could be used to interest young people in math in that same way, kind of finding the universal and... Interesting. I mean, there's a lot of math behind music. If you look at harmonics or chord structures, the biggest similarity is pattern recognition, right? And being able to understand complex patterns and hold them in your brain at the same time. That's the biggest similarity. I also think it's there's a really cool emotional connection between creating in math or creating in music in that you need to go to build the best possible model or to write the best song. You really need to go deep into your own truth and what works. And you also need to be a relentless editor. It's very easy to come up with an idea and say, oh, okay, that's good. Okay, I'm, I'm attached to that idea. Okay, I'm done. 
much of songwriting is, no, that's not good enough. No, that's not good enough. Okay, I'm going to put that there. That's a placeholder. And then I'm going to come back. So now I'm trying to tell a story. So the, the song you mentioned before, Let You In, what's the story? It's like, okay, I just want to hide, find some place to get away. That Okay, that's a chorus. I'm going to say that again. But the story arc has to be, okay, I met somebody. Okay, we got closer. I got scared. And now I got really scared. So there's an arc that has to be told in the verses. If you write a song, for me, I start out and I go, okay, what do I want to say in the first verse? What do I want to say in the second verse? What do I want to say? And then once I know what it is that I want to say, the writing part gets easy. But if I don't know what I'm going to say, I shouldn't even start. And I, I think that's a mistake that some people make in songwriting is they just, oh, here's a cool line. Now what rhymes with that? Where am I going to go? <laughs> <laughs> and it's harder to write a song that way. That's how I used to try. Well, just a few more minutes here. You're very involved in philanthropy as well. I understand you have the Live Music Society, which helps small venues stay alive. And you have Math for America, which helps put math teachers in high schools, I believe. And so you are keeping both of the balls in the air. You are still very much involved, it sounds like, in both math and music. So what's next for Pete Muller? <laughs> so there are two big things that I've done philanthropically for music. I was on the, the Berkeley School of Music board for nine years. And Roger Brown, who was the president of Berkeley, told me when I joined the board, you know, usually people come up with something cool as a project. After a few years, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I had just come back and made my third album in 2014. And the producer of that album, Rick DePoffy, who was a dear friend, after making that album, he said, you need a studio in New York City. And I said, absolutely. Let's go find a one-bedroom apartment <laughs> and convert it into a studio. We had recorded that album at a place called Avatar, which had been previously called the Power Station, which was a, a famed recording studio, kind of on the level of Abbey Road, almost, in New York. And he came to me and said, I, I just found out that they're going to sell it and turn it into condos. And here's what I thought. Why don't you buy it? And the place was falling apart. Why don't you buy it, add a fifth floor, make that your studio, and then facilitate the rest to go to Berkeley? And I said, Rick, you're nuts. And, and he had been diagnosed with a glioblastoma. Sorry. He's passed since. He was a dear friend. And, um, and I, I said, you know, the, the brain tumor is clearly kicking in. Here. Um, and we laughed about that. And then I thought about it. And I thought, you know, why not? So we, we actually did that. And the master's program opened in New York. It's exactly the program I would have loved to have gone to when I went to Tisch instead, because it's actually about songwriting. They have a lot of other things as well. They've already been over-enrolled in the fall. It's worked out fabulously, and I also have my studio in New York, so I'm excited. You mentioned the Live Music Society. So I went on tour, this was 2019, we did 50 dates. We went around to a lot of wonderful small clubs, venues that maybe seated 200 people. These owners that, that ran these clubs were doing it out of, out of love. The experience the audience had every night was fantastic. Musicians were treated really, really well. There's a place called Seven Steps Up in Michigan, run by Michelle and Gary. And, you know, you, you show up there. If you need to sleep on their floor upstairs, they'll do that. They'll feed you dinner at night. They'll bring a great crowd for you. I mean, it, it, was, it was amazing. And I thought, these people are making no money. I have the ability to start a charity to help these clubs. And that would be a great thing to do for music. You know, once you get to 500 or 1,000 seats, 2,000 seats... Venues become profitable. If you're good, you can do it. But at 200 seats, even if you're doing it right, you're kind of making a small amount of money. And I thought, 
why not help these places be even better, the people that are doing it for the right reasons? So I got a number of friends together. We created a board and we started that. And we've given out grants to over 100 clubs, I think, already. And we plan to do many more. We just hired a new executive director named Kat Henry, who was at Jazz at Lincoln Center for a long time and very excited about having her there and driving it. That's wonderful. So what's next? What's next? Well, we just finished recording a new original album. It's the best record I've ever made. We recorded 15 songs. I've just listened to all of them being mastered. There's one that we are still finishing up, and I think we'll release it at the end of the year. I love the songs on it. There's another duet with uh, Missy and myself called Light Up the Night. That'll be one of the few, the first few singles. The first single will be called The Other Side, and it's about when you have a grumpy partner. Well, that never happens. <laughs> it never happens. So it's completely hypothetical, Lisa, you understand. It's about getting to the other side and getting your partner to the other side. And we just filmed a, a video with a bunch of dancers in Los Angeles, and I can't wait to share that one. That'll come out later in the year. So that album's great. And then the Kindred Souls, the quartet that'll be playing at Harmony, we are working on our second cover album. So our last cover album, we had a number of songs that made it on the on the charts. Uh, uh, we were just, you, you know the Bobby McFerrin song, Don't Worry, Be Happy? So we have a cover of that that's very different from that song. And uh, we're just taking it to radio now. And then we're going to be working uh, probably in early January on the next cover record with the group. And the cool thing about the group is there are four of us, John Hooley, Martha McDonald, uh, Missy Saltero, who we talked about myself, and everyone plays an instrument. Martha plays the violin, John plays the guitar and saxophone, Missy plays the cajon, and we all sing. So it's four-part harmony, kind of a Fleetwood Mackie, Crosby, Stills, Nash band, and we just loved going around and People seem to like us, too, so we're going to do more of it. Great, and you do sound wonderful together. And I wish you the best of luck with your new album and at Harmony in the Woods. Look forward to having you there. Thank you so much, Pete, for being with us. It was a pleasure, Lisa. All right, thank you. Harmony Talk is a podcast brought to you by A.M. Skyer, a third-generation family insurance agency, started in 1920. Talk to you next time.